0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: My next guest, I don't know if she had planned to have a nice quiet Labor Day sitting out by the pool on a scorching day. I'm guessing those plans were pretty much scuttled yesterday uh, when the premier announced that uh, Steve Clark, his housing minister, was resigning. And then there was a cabinet shuffle. Sabrina Nenji is with the Queens Park Observer. Joins me now, Sabrina. Thanks for doing this today.
2: Yeah, of course. I I had a better Labor Day than Steve Clark, let's say.
1: Well, the, the bar for that, I would think, is quite low. <laughs> you're right. You're right. This is, um, you know what, people have been, I don't want to get into the same stuff because people have been talking about this now for 24 hours, more than 24 hours. And uh, I'm sure that most people listening know the general outline of what happened. The housing minister, as a result of the whole Greenbelt thing, has stepped down. And as I said, um, new housing minister, new cabinet minister's Does this, though, let's move it forward a little bit, Sabrina. Does this do anything? Does this change anything? Or is this still the exact same story as it was 24, 48 hours ago?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it changes things. But is it the end of the Ford government's Greenbelt headache? No, not by a long shot. Uh, And, you know, we heard the premier address this today, which um, isn't really much of a, you know, plot development, but he did sort of do a a a week climb down you could call it and just basically announce that they're now going to be reviewing all the greenbelt lands including those that were controversially opened up um so there could be more coming but he wants to make sure this you know, th- this uh, carve up stands on its merits. So there's a lot more detail. I want to hear uh, about this. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of vague at this point. But I think that just announcing a review is some acknowledgement that the government has, you know, has admitted that this process was flawed um, because it becomes a credibility issue. If, if you're admitting the process was flawed, how can people trust the results of a, a flawed process? And so now they, they're saying they're going to look into it, make sure everything's on the up and up. But I, I don't really, see the ford government backtracking on these controversial lands i mean there's eight billion dollars more than that up for grabs uh on these particular lands and you know things could get tricky legally if the ford government does decide to you know return those those lands to be protected Um, I I think they're just going to, you know, dot, dot the I's and cross the T's on this one, which of course, as we know, wasn't done. And I think it's, it's possible that Steve Clark just spent some time in the penalty box, but he's still got a good reputation. We're still seeing the premier stand by him. Uh, so, you know, I I don't think he's down, but I don't necessarily think he's out at this point.
1: You mentioned legal issues. It's a great point. Uh, I also wonder about political issues besides the obvious ones. If Doug Ford backs down on this one right now and gets, right, gets says, okay, we're going right back to where we started, green belt is back to where it is, does that not send a message to the other parties and, frankly, anyone who disagrees with any position he has, whether it's education or healthcare, anything, press hard enough and he'll back down? Is it not sort of throwing chum into the water to make his life horrible for the next few years?
2: Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, there's no, uh, you know, good way out of this for the premier right now. Um, I mean, we've already got NDP leader Mark Stiles, you know, as the premier was talking, put out a statement saying that, you know, this this review is not really what they've been calling for you know they want it to be a full-on reversal and I do think that the Ford government has sometimes rightfully shown that they're willing to backtrack on on you know controversial policies I mean just remember during the COVID days at the height of the pandemic uh, when they were shutting down playgrounds I mean they they obviously uh, Change their minds on that after after some backlash, but uh, this is no doubt a major credibility, credibility issue for the PCs, um, and I think we're starting to see some cracks a little bit in Ford's popularity over the last few years that's gotten him this majority mandate that more and more people are saying in public opinion polls that they believe the Ford government is uh, you know, in it for themselves, or they just look out for their insiders. And I think that, you know, especially for a premier like Doug Ford, who likes to say that, you know, the, the only polls he cares about is when he goes shopping at Walmart, and hears from folks there, and you know, claims to be for the people, I think that this is something that he's going to be really unhappy with, and, you know, could potentially be the beginning of the end for them, uh, ah. politically speaking. So um, I, I do think they're not going to backtrack on this entirely. They've been spinning their housing narrative, but certainly. Certainly, you know to show the people that you know there was some process here i think would would go a long way for this government
1: this is not just a point uh, a question about the ford government it's a question about frankly every government but we use this one because it's the story right now if this is we, we've heard from a number of members of the government that look it's a very very tiny bit of the green belt that's actually being talked about and it's not the whole green belt and all the rest how come governments as a rule when they do something controversial have such a hard time getting their message out in a way that's clear. If it's if there's nothing here, surely the communications people can make that point, or the government can make that point. And this happens again and again and again that somehow the communications gets lost, and they say we were all just misunderstood. Why do they not do a better job communicating if it's nothing?
2: Yeah, I think this government in particular has put a big emphasis on you know their political comms. I think having Paul Calandra, for one, you know, take over this hot potato file is is a sign of that, you know, Calandra has a reputation of giving the government line, um, you know, he's a heavy hitter in question period, and no doubt he will be taking the brunt of this uh, for the Ford government. I mean, he's also government house leader. So he's, he's kind of the point person in the house. And, you know, I don't see the opposition letting up on, on this anytime soon. But you're right, I think this as a housing narrative is something that everyone's talking about right now, the housing crisis and housing affordability. Uh, and it's something that needs, to, that needs obviously to be resolved. I think, you know, th- this government just pushing that line, eventually people are going to see through it. I mean, when you're getting asked questions about Uh, you know, the process of this and, you know, ministerial accountability, it's like, you can't just keep pushing the housing line or attacking reporters for owning a house, which we saw the premier do. I mean, clearly, uh, Ford has been rattled on this. And so I think that to kind of have, you know, uh, some, some humility, some, you know, more acknowledgement, which we did see a little bit of today that things were not done, up to snuff. I think we we'll go a long way with the public, especially on the trust factor here. Well,
1: we'll never know this, but what do you think the meeting was like when Ford called Paul Calander into the office and says, I'd like you to take this job? <laughs> I mean, what do you think that discussion is? Because there's, there's no minister who is getting sent into the line of fire like this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. But I did hear, um, you know, behind closed doors, there was an emergency caucus call on Monday, just as, you know, as all of this was unfolding. Um, And Calandra actually had indicated that he wanted this file. Uh, Whereas I know a lot of other ministers do not want to go near it with a 10-foot pole. But like I said, Calandra is someone who is, um, you know, he's an attack dog, essentially, in question period. And he's not afraid to you know, um, face off with reporters about this troubled issue. So do I think that, you know, he's probably one of the, they picked one of their more capable communicators on this, which they need. Um, Absolutely. And I think that them talking about a review right now is sort of the first step, but again, it's just been a slow drip. And I think you're right. You know, a lot of this seems to have bloodied the waters rather than, you know, put a stop on the bleeding.
1: Uh, We only have a few seconds left here, but just uh, change tack a little bit, just to do with the cabinet shuffle, one of the overriding issues in this in this city, in Hamilton, for years now has been LRT. Carolyn Mulroney is now out as transportation minister. She's kind of been, well, she's been there for much of the time this has been going on. Any chance that the new transportation minister comes in and has a clean slate to look at this again? Any chance that LRT is affected by this cabinet shuffle?
2: Well, do I think that this is going to speed things up? No, I don't have my hopes up. But I do think that, um, you know, having a new face there, some fresh blood will go a long way. Certainly, it seems like you know, I mean, obviously in Toronto, there's crosstown LRT problems there, too. I mean, the transit, the transit file is long delayed and has a lot of a, a lot of, you know, troubling aspects to it, of course. But uh, I think the the idea behind switching Mulroney and putting Prime Meat in there is because transportation is a very high profile issue, especially for the board government. Mulroney um, has been more of a, you know, policy behind the scenes person. And so while Treasury Board is a lot lower profile, I don't know if she'll be on chatting with you Scott as often as maybe she would have previously but they hold the purse strings so you know it's a it's still a a major file for Mulrooney but I think some fresh blood uh I I don't know if this is going to solve any problems but certainly we'll have a new minister to uh, demand answers from Mm. on this file.
1: Sabrina Nanji uh with the Queens Park Observer uh will let you go because who knows there's probably something else breaking as we speak right now it's that kind of day uh Sabrina really appreciate the time today thanks.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on
0: 900 CHML.
1: All right. You're singing along with the song as we come in. We're all in this together. What if that was real estate? What if you were going to, you know, houses are, well, we all know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Houses are so expensive, so difficult for so many people to get into the market. What if you went in with a sibling or with a friend? Or with a parent, which is probably the most common one. Well, what do you think about that idea? Is that something that you could ever see doing and making work? People are. This is a, this is a thing now. More people are finding someone other than a spouse to go in and try and buy a house together so that they can somehow get into the market. It's, as I say, it's, it, it seems like a creative answer to a problem. Karen Yulevsky is the Chief Operating Officer for Royal LePage. Joins me now, Karen, thank you for this today.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: This does sound, you know, anytime there is a challenge, uh, creative people will find a solution. This sounds like one of those creative solutions.
3: In some respects, yes, it is. So a creative solution to an affordability problem, as mentioned, that overwhelmingly is impacting the youngest. The youngest in our survey said that by more than 80%, they would not have been able to purchase the home they're in had they not purchased with a co-owner, someone other than a spouse or significant other.
1: So there, in my mind, there are three different groups that fall into this, parents, siblings, friends. So let's go through those because I, I would think that the most common one would be parents, and, and even if the parents aren't going into it necessarily as co-owners, we know parents have been helping kids forever. Here, though, we are talking about the parents, I guess, are signing on as co-owner of the house with their child.
3: That's right. So we know that families the biggest category of people that are buying together in a co-ownership scenario. And when parents are buying with children, what our survey told us is that in many cases, they actually are all living under the same roof, Oh, but... In about as many circumstances, they're not. So that's where you see that there's sort of two issues at play. You've got the financial issue, and then you also have the multi-generational, what we perhaps often think about when we think about families living together, someone looking after a a child or someone looking after an elderly parent.
1: In in the numbers, in the surveys you've done, Is there a different response to that as far as the multi-generational families living together as far as first generation Canadians? Because other parts of the world, that's a very, very common thing. It hasn't been always that common here. Is it more common with newcomers or is it now becoming very common for everyone?
3: Well, our survey didn't delve into whether the people responding were newcomers or not. Certainly, we know that from a cultural perspective, there are many cultures where this is more common, but we also see it here in, in all sorts of cross-sections and cultures throughout Canada as well, simply because of issues like people outside of the home working, uh, people living longer than they ever have before and being more comfortable in their home as opposed to an assisted living facility. And we know with COVID, people's lifestyles changed to some extent. During COVID, people moved in and out of homes differently. We saw people congregating together in bigger homes in more suburban or rural areas, we saw young people not fleeing the nest as earlier as, right. as early as they typically would. So some of that's still working its way through the system, but we certainly know that people are living in multi uh, generational uh, dynamics uh, more and more.
1: What about the um, the legal part of the So if, if on your own home, if you sell your own home, that your primary residence. There's no capital gains tax right now if you sell it. So whatever you make on it is money that you can apply to whatever, but if you own a second home, there are capital gains taxes, right? So if you are now living in your own home as a parent, but a part owner of another home, if that other home sells, is there capital gains or can the other person who this is their only home, you know what I'm saying? Can they just write it? How does it work?
3: Sure. So without pretending to be a tax expert, certainly on a secondary home, there are capital gains that typically would apply. You can only have one principal resident. So that is a consequence that we would encourage people to understand. So if a parent is on title now to a second home, and that home's going to be held for a number of years where you're going to see appreciation and value, which is what is going to trigger those capital gains upon disposition, that's something that should be worked out in a legal contract at the outset of the purchase. At Royal Page, we're talking about this survey, but we're talking along with it about how people need to be prepared and go into these relationships, eyes wide open, understand the financial risks, burdens, responsibility, and then also the responsibility of actually who's caring for the home, who's going to mow the lawn, Who's going to make sure that everything is is taken care of inside and out.
1: And I would think with siblings uh, buying in together, that's a obviously a big one. Let's skip over siblings for a sec. People can let their imagination run wild about whether they could do this with their own sibling. Friends though is an interesting one to me because, you know, you go into a home purchase with a friend and it may seem great and it may be great, But I also can see, you know, friends can fight sometimes, friends can have disagreements. What do you do if you get into a home purchase with a friend and then a year later you're not getting along?
3: So exactly, you know, these things can happen, right? We know that that's a potential. So the best advice is at the outset to ensure that you know exactly what will happen. And it's in writing all parties in agreement as to what will happen if there is a disagreement. What will happen if one party can't afford their payments on the home? What if one party meets somebody and wants to get married and now they need to go off and rent or buy another home? What is going to trigger a buyout or a sale of the home? On the flip side of that, where it can become more of a interpersonal or emotional issue, less about the money. Let's take the example of friends buying into a cottage property, a recreational property. Those typically aren't used 365 days a year. So that can be a great idea, right? Here's this property that you only had to pay a quarter of or a half of, and you get to enjoy it for X number of weeks per year. But That relationship also needs to be spelled out very clearly. Who is going to stock the fridge when they leave? Is there (laughs) going to be a professional cleaner come in as people switch off for their weeks? Things like that. People get excited at the beginning of these types of transactions, but they really need to think through all of those details to make sure it's successful.
1: And it's so difficult, I would imagine, if you've got a real, if you have a friend who's close enough that you would be willing to do this. It's awkward to say, oh, let's make a contract. Let's put it in writing because, you know, oh, we'll figure it out. We're, we're, but I mean, it's, it's almost, it seems difficult or it would be difficult to make sure it's so legal, but you almost have to.
3: I think you have to. It's such a big financial decision and it has such, a potential for hurting what was a very great relationship. So I think that's how you approach it. Hey, our relationship is great and we trust and like one another enough to go into this purchase together. Let's make sure that we don't leave any loose ends so that we can preserve that relationship.
1: It's, it's a really interesting idea and I suspect we're going to see more of this. I don't know that it's crazy common right now, but I suspect that, you know, if, if prices don't drop and they're showing very little sign that that's happening. Uh, I think this could be something people may begin to explore a little more. Um, Karen Ulewski, Chief Operating Officer for Royal Page, really appreciate your thoughts today. Thank you for doing this.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Thankfully, I mean, heavens, thankfully, kids are back in school. And I don't mean thankfully as in summer's over. I don't mean it that way. I'm not talking about, oh great, parents are happy their kids are, I don't mean that. I mean, If school is on, thankfully, we're not back in those days when everybody was stuck at home and doing everything online. That's what I mean. I don't think it's an outrageous sentiment to suggest that kids are going to learn better most of the time, most kids, in class, in person, with other people, in a social setting. They're going to do better socially, all these different things. But... What about adults? What about those at work? We're not talking about kids anymore. What about those who have a job and for a long time, they have been allowed to work from home? But now, you know what? I know that COVID may be starting up again, but we're, we're returning to normal. We've for a while now returned to normal, but for many people, they've still been able to work at home. And yet a number of companies are starting to say, you know what? Time to start coming back in. It's been good. It served its purpose, we wore out the Zoom machine, time to start coming back in. Uh, Dr. Nita Chincer is Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Management with the University of Guelph, uh, joins us now. Thank you for this.
4: Thank you, and thanks for having a back-to-school quiz on day one. Well, I'm there you go. Gonna I-, you.
1: <laughs> I won't ask you the answer because I know you know it. and I don't want you to give I it away. I definitely really
4: but... know it. I've been teaching my grade 8 student the same math. <laughs> there you go.
1: See? Okay, so we know now at least it's a grade 8 question. So anyone calling, it's grade 8. You should be able to get this. Um, This is a really, really tough one because... You know, I I think probably uh, the circumstance, we don't like too much about COVID, but one thing that it did was open some doors to realizing some things about how we can work that we may never have discovered otherwise.
4: Definitely. And there there were companies before that embraced work from home and embraced flexible work schedules and embraced the concept of rewarding people for their outcomes rather than the number of hours they put in. And other companies that resisted it pre-COVID. But the companies that resisted it pre-COVID realized, well, we can kind of make this work if we have X, Y, Z parameters, and now those are the ones that are thinking, you know what? How do we balance this so both employee needs are met and our company needs are met at the same time?
1: I, I you know, it's sort of a little off-topic, but I really, have, I've thought this a bunch of times over the last few years. I wonder what we would have done if technology had not been at the point where it was. I mean, zoom was still relatively new. FaceTime was still eh, sort of new, um, all these things. If we had not had that, what would we have done?
4: Well, I actually started teleworking back after my MBA. In nineteen ninety-nine. Oh, well then. And back then we had virtual teams, and you know, we had these global teams. I was at Nortel Networks, you know, Candace Darling back in the day, and Hewlett-Packard, and we would do phone conferences. We used the telephone system to do our conference calls. You'd put the phone on speakerphone in the middle of the conference room. Everyone would take turns speaking. So teleconferencing existed well before Zoom and FaceTime. And sometimes when you're on a meeting and you notice half of the people have black screens on, their video's not on, you (laughs) kind of feel like you're back in 1999, the teleconferencing days with those Nortel network phones.
1: The difference, though, is that, uh, and there are many differences, obviously, but with Uh Zoom or with the visual ones... It felt like you were together. I, I don't know if, if a conference call feels, I've been on a million conference calls for press conferences, or whatever. It, it's hard to know who's there. It's hard to, it, it's so, I I thought it was so different seeing people as part of the process.
4: Definitely. And there's so much of our communication that comes yes. from nonverbal. Yes. And so when we think about it, 85% of our communication, you get someone who's nodding, someone who's wrinkling their eyebrows because they're confused about something you said, somebody who's multitasking and it's clear that they're multitasking. Those things would happen when we were face-to-face and we could react to those. So even as speakers, we felt more engaged. We felt like we were having a greater connection and people were speaking up more. Beyond that, when there was a meeting, you know, 10 minutes before the meeting, you'd be having an informal conversation with the people. 10 minutes after the meeting, you'd be having an informal conversation with People would ask questions or there'd be follow-ups or you'd say, you know, have you done the project that I asked you to do? And that was very organic. And when we moved to exclusively remote, we lost a lot of that. Some of the consulting I've been doing with, you know, Government of Canada and various school boards, I've been telling them to reinstitute time for that organic conversation. But it has to be leader-driven. The person who's developing that meeting and hosting that meeting has to say, okay, we're going to do a round table and we want everyone to talk or can we get everyone on with the visuals or half the people on with visuals so we get some feedback for the person who's speaking. I don't know if you ever did a Zoom call where nobody's online. My online classes are like this sometimes. You do a Zoom call, nobody's speaking, black screen, you feel like you're speaking into the abyss. (laughs) Employers are realizing that's not how you run a business.
1: Well, and it seems as though that is what's behind what we're talking about today, which is a, a number of businesses and bosses saying, okay, you know what? This has been great. This got us through a tough time. And I know we've grown very comfortable with this, but now it's time to get back in the office. I'm assuming it's for the exact reasons you just said. We want people actually face-to-face and having that free-range talking time. I know free-range isn't the proper term, but you know what I mean, where we can just... Organic, definitely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. where you can just talk and maybe some ideas percolate or something else. That's what this is all about, right?
4: Well, that's probably one-third of the equation. Okay. The other third of the equation is that when we went to working remotely, stats showed us that we were actually working more hours. We were putting in more time in meetings, but we didn't increase our productivity. Um, But we were really, really good at our jobs. What we lost track of was where the organization was going. So the organizations have pivoted. They've changed their direction. They've changed their product. They've changed their tempo. And they don't have a way to really communicate and rebuild that organizational culture. So that's the second part of this, is that they're saying we need to not just have people who are good at their jobs. You know, jobs will change. We want to have people who... Are also understanding what the organizational mission is who identify with the organization who want us to help achieve our goals and know what our goals are and that's really hard to do when everyone's only focused on their job Mm. the third reason of course is that there's it's really really hard to measure productivity and know who's struggling and who needs help and how you can coach and develop your employees And some of the consulting I've been doing has been employees coming to me saying, I haven't had a performance review in three years. I don't know what's wrong. And then on the flip side, one who's working flexible hours and working remotely with high levels of autonomy, how do we even figure out where they need help, where we can give them some developmental support and how we can advance their career. So those three are kind of the trifecta causing organizations to, ask for people to come back into the office.
1: We are talking with Dr. Anita Chinzer, Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Management with the University of Guelph about companies asking people now to begin really coming back into the office. You said something in the first of those three things. I made a little note here. You said we worked more hours, but we were less productive. Did I get that right?
4: And that is actually research coming out of Harvard Business School and consistent with research coming out of Statistics Canada. We were putting in more hours and going to more meetings. Um, and the struggle was because it was harder for us to help find team solutions. So I might've been struggling with something independently and my colleague is struggling with something independently. If you were in the office, you could poke your head up, ask a question and get back and solve that problem. The other thing is we were getting into over meetings. People were being invited to too many meetings and mm-hmm. a means to ensure that communication was happening. But the truth is there was, you know, a good 20 to 30% of people checked out of meetings. So even though they were technically logged into the meetings, they weren't like, it was just overload. They weren't processing anymore. There were like, there was cognitive overload. So they were putting in more hours, burning themselves out.
1: I mean, I can certainly understand the more hours part because the one big difference between what we had and then what became is that when you're working at home, you never are far away from your work. I can speak personally, I I would go back to my computer into the evening and whenever I wasn't supposed to be working because it's always there for that reason alone, I would think that an awful lot of people would be saying, yeah, I want to get back into the office because I can separate my work and the rest of my life yet I'm not sure that people are rushing to go back. In fact, we've seen government uh, organizations, government unions as part of their mm-hmm. negotiations saying, we don't want to go back into the office. It would seem you would want to get away from your work.
4: And the government uh, associations of so the federal level strike, one of the big issues was we want to have a mandate that we're only asked to return to the office maximum of two days of the week. And that didn't make it through to the collective bargaining agreement the organization said, really, this is individually negotiated. This comes down to what's going on in your department, the nature of your job, how much change we're going through, you know, those kinds of issues. So there's been a lot of resistance from certain types of people. I mean, it's polarized. There are people who want to go back to the office because they're burnt out. They're finding the Lines between work and home are blurred. They're finding that they want to progress their careers. They they want to innovate and grow as well. So they want to go back. And then we have other people who are saying, I don't want to go back. I've moved away from work. And I actually find myself more productive at home. Mm. And for me, this reduction of their commute and the time getting ready really makes me feel like this is work-life balance. So it's, you know, we got this polarized two groups saying the people who are saying I want to stay home have a legitimate reason to want to stay home. Others who are saying I want to go to the office have a legitimate reason. My problem is with the people who say that I want to stay at home because, you know, I'm not used to getting dressed in the morning because (laughs) I like to take my pet for a walk in the afternoon. Those are things that you shouldn't expect your employer to accommodate for. If the employer wants the whole team back on a Monday so you can actually build Team Mojo and Momentum, that's not a fair enough reason to stay home.
1: Yeah. Doing a, a conference call in your underpants, I don't think is in the job <laughs> description. Of, <laughs> we all uh,
4: those videos oh, for sure.
1: <laughs> all right. So part of your job title is a professor of organizational management. Let's talk about management for a second. Is a good manager now looking at their employees and managing every one of them differently and saying, Bob, you're doing exceptional work, working exclusively from home go ahead and stay home. Sally, you have really dropped the ball. We need you back in here because you're not. Or is that asking for problems in the office?
4: So that would be asking for problems if you don't have a way to validate that Sally is not doing good work. So I know one of the big four banks is actually actively bringing in people who are not performing well at home and saying, we need to bring you in because you need some coaching and some development work. But they've been using e-monitoring And tracking software to see how many clients are dealt with in a day or comparing the benchmarks of how much financial revenue someone is responsible for. So they have benchmarks to show who's the poor performer and they're asking those people back. But without active monitoring or benchmarks or performance metrics, other organizations are saying, you know what, we're going to go hard. So there are a lot of companies that are saying everybody needs to come back two days or three days of the week. And I know government's taking this, but also quite actively in the public sector, too. And the big push for making a standardized rule is because when you give people the option to work from home or work in the office, it's traditionally women, especially women with younger children and racialized minorities who have difficulty with transportation who opt to work from home. And we know pre-COVID, working from home resulted in a lack of career progression, lack of development opportunities, and a lack of leadership opportunities because you didn't have the proximity. When some people were in the office, some people were at home, the people at home, it was a career-limiting move. So if we allow people to individually negotiate that and say, I want to work from home, we may be perpetuating some of those Um, biases, systemic biases that led to inequities in the workplace. So if we fast forward five or six years down the road, we might not have the women we, we need who have the experience and the bench strength for leadership roles, or the racialized minorities might not have those opportunities for development and career progression so that we have them in the leadership roles down the road. This is something that's a big conversation I've been having, especially with the HR groups out of B.C., And, you know, this is, uh, or there's a woman on boards, uh, executive team in Quebec, and we've been having those conversations about what does this mean if we give too much flexibility, who's, who are the people who are asking to work from home and does this actually set us back more than it pushes us forward? The
1: flip side though, on that one is we've been hearing now for years that companies are having a hard time finding people to fill jobs. And one of the things that they've had to do is give enticements, one of them possibly being working from home. So how do you balance that where people say, I really want to work from home, and if you want me to come and work for you, mm-hmm. that's one of the conditions if you then say, no, you may be chasing away good people?
4: Yeah, we have a range. We have some companies that have accepted work from home and others that are pretty hard, like JP Morgan or um, Elon Musk has had a very hard stance on coming back to the office. So we do have a range, but it's the same way that before we had a range about companies that were capitalists versus socialist, about companies that were you know, really focused in on green initiative versus ones that were pollutants. And we were aligning ourselves with companies that matched our values. So there will be some frictional unemployment, but the truth is that, especially given all the layoffs that are happening in the tech industry, there have also been other things going on at the same time. There's been an influx of immigrants. There have been massive changes to technology like chat, GPT, and other productivity-based technologies for automation that are resulting in job loss. So some people who are sitting pretty and saying, well, I've been at home for three years, I haven't done anything developmentally, my company wants me to return to the office, I'll just quit. There is not an imaginary job out there for you that is going to accept that in the long term. Companies are looking for an exchange agreement saying that I can let you continue to work from home, You can continue to work for me, but there's an exchange agreement that you still know what's going on with the pulse of the organization. That when I ask you for a day or two of the week, you do come in. And I've seen pretty hard stances being used on that. Recent stats show out of the Fortune 500 companies for 2023, they have been calling back people into the office at a 0.5% increase month over month. So if that's what the big companies are doing, we can see it's going to be a slow trend, but there will be some return. That is mandated.
1: we got to run, but one more thing. Legally, could a company say, we will pay you a premium if you work from the office? If you care to work from home, we're going to pay you less. Can they do that?
4: there are companies that have changed pay but they're changing pay based on where the branch office is so for example if you're living in Niagara Falls versus living in Toronto versus living in Thunder Bay or cost Marie, of living
1: for area then right. they
4: can actually bury that but that'll be based on your branch office but giving a premium to entice you to the office is something that hasn't been legally challenged and companies are looking to pay more they're actually saying, if you're working remotely, let me cut your pay. And that's the negotiation. It's not that you're going to get more for coming in. There's not more money to give out. They're saying, we might have to give you a bit of a, a penalty for staying at home. And can we possibly, you know, interesting increase the and increase the financial benefit to us of you staying at home?
1: A very interesting. Uh, Dr. Nita Chincer, Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Management with the University of Guelph. Uh, great chat. Thank you for doing this today.
4: Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott
0: Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: The Rolling Stones say they are going to be coming out with their new, first new album since 2005. The last time the Rolling Stones put out a new album, the first ever video was uploaded onto YouTube around the same time. It's been a while. It has been a while. It was the the year of Hurricane Katrina. It has been a while, but the Stones say, no, we got a new one coming out. It is going to be called Hackney Diamonds. And we're going to learn more about it in the next few days. However, I do wonder about this. Not that the stones can't put out now, they can do whatever they want. They're the Rolling Stones. Do we want artists who are now in their golden years? And really, I mean, I, I'm not hy- being hyper hyperbolic. They, they are getting up there. They're all in their eighties. Do we want new music? From groups like the Stones, from Paul McCartney, from Willie Nelson, or whoever, pick any of your older artists. Do we want new music or do we just want to hear the hits that we, the the reason we love them from way back when? Let me bring in Lou Molinaro. He's an instructor at Durham College and the Harris Institute for Music. Lou, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. Hey, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Let's go there. Do we want new Rolling Stones music, or do we just want to hear Start Me Up and Satisfaction and all these songs that we've loved from the past?
0: Well, that's a loaded question, because uh, you have to look at it in two ways. If you're a Rolling Stones fan, you never want the story of the Rolling Stones to ever end. So this is another chapter to the uh, story of the Stones. Um... There's our, uh, then there's the other uh, side of the coin where you have uh, music fans that perhaps are not the dedicated, true Rolling Stones fans that just don't want to um, water the, uh, the the big hits down, right, by just putting another album out because they they don't really feel it's that necessary. But in looking at it as a music fan in general, I think it's important. Uh, for this album to come out, only because it might be sort of like the last record that the Stones will probably put out. And if so, uh, they're doing it in a really classy way. Uh, they brought in um, Bill Wyman, the former bass player. Uh, songs will also include Charlie Watts, who passed away not too long ago. And then special guests, uh, Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney, mm. the only two surviving uh, members of the Beatles. So I think without saying this is going to be our last record, uh, it probably will be. And if it's going to be a bookend, uh, it will probably be a historical one because there hasn't been or nor will there ever be another band like the Rolling Stones.
1: All right. Having said that, and I don't disagree with what you're saying, I, I don't know if I would say there will never be a band like that. They're, the, they're in that group. Let's put it that way. They are in that very elite group where they can pretty much do what they want. But is there a risk here that this comes out and... We don't know what it's going to sound like yet, but is there a risk that people go, yeah, they never should have done this. They, you know, it's too much. It's too, The moment of creativity has passed. We don't know. It could be fantastic, but is that risk there?
0: The risk of comparison, comparing this to their... Uh previous material for sure i don't expect it to be as strong as say tattoo you or uh exile on main street but let's remember uh mick Jagger is a savvy uh business person and this is just going to generate and restart that uh, rolling stones financial machine up again and um you know it will mean uh more merch it'll mean tours it'll mean more uh yep. visits with the rolling stones which will. Um, just basically become a, a, a huge money maker.
1: Yeah, I think I, I have no doubt that probably they and a lot of other groups, big groups, have looked at Taylor Swift this summer and said, wait a second, time to get back on the road. There's money to be made. Sure. And
0: you brought up a good point. These gentlemen are in their 80s, or at least Keith and Mick are. And um, I don't think many of us are expecting the capacity of music to be as strong as a, what, what it was. But who knows, this could be the last time we see the Rolling Stones. So I think it has that sort of uh, importance to it.
1: Yeah, it, it's a different way of doing it because um, the one person that always comes to mind with the opposite is Billy Joel, who I, I've heard him talk about this where in an interview where he stopped basically making any music 25 or 30 years ago, he said, no, I'm done. I've made the music I'm going to make. And you know what? Nobody wants new Billy Joel stuff anyway. They want to come to a concert and they want to hear me play Piano Man and they want to hear me play The Stranger and they want to hear me blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And you know, I can put out a new album and nobody wants that. They, they don't cheer for the new stuff. They cheer for the hits. To me, I, I, I kind of lean that way that, you know, when you go to a Stones concert, do you want to have, in the middle of it, in the middle of this sequence of great hits, do you want to have two or three from the new album? I don't know. I don't know.
0: No, no you don't even want those two or three, to be perfectly honest. You want the hits, right?
1: It, I think so. I, I think that... And so, the the other part about this that's so interesting is there was a time... I mean, let's go back to the Beatles when they... Um, uh, when I'm 64. I mean, 64 was like ancient. It was... The idea in that song was... If you're 64, you are you are close to death. They're all in their 80s now. We now have artists and not just a few, tons of them playing into their 70s, 80s, 90s. Right. And it's an interesting new subgenre almost of who do I want to go see who can still do it, who can still sound like they sounded at their best, but also is going to give me the show with all the stuff that I want to hear.
0: And I think that's where it boils down to this being really important for the diehard Rolling Stones fans the most, the the ones that recognize all those points that you made, but still will go see them because they are, you know, the Stones, it's their favorite band. And there's millions and millions of fans all over the world that still uh, follow the Rolling Stones, still buy Rolling Stones t-shirts and merch and books and all sorts of uh, podcasts that they're following. And, uh side projects that Keith Richards is on or Ronnie Wood art exhibitions, everything that encompasses the world of the Rolling Stones, there's still a major attraction to their fans and there's millions of them. And I think the reason why they're really doing this is because they feel confident that even though the record may not uh get streamed many times or perhaps sell a lot of hard copies, it will put thousands and thousands of people back into those yes. stadiums yep. because It'll make money and they, and they're definitely,
1: uh, assured of that. The other thing about this that I think plays in their favor is, uh, Keith Richards and Ronnie Woods can still play guitar. That's clear. They haven't, you know, they haven't lost that. There are a lot of singers, front men or individual artists whose music was written for them at a time when their voice had to be much more supple and rangy. Most of the Stones, Mick Jagger does not have a ton of super high notes that he's got to hit. The, he, their music is written in a way, I don't think this was the intent, but that he can still do it. He can still sound like Mick Jagger as opposed to a lot of guys who you listen and you go, well, that was an octave lower than what he usually did, but there was no hope he was hitting that note. He can still sing the songs that the Stones have.
0: You know, it's funny. I was reading something earlier this afternoon that said that a lot of the songs, when the Stones perform them live, they don't change the octaves. They don't change the keys. Uh, they're still in the same key as they were recorded back in 63 or 72 or 85 or what have you. So that that has to say something. But then Mick is not your typical uh, 80-year-old man either. There's something about him that stands out. He still jogs every day. He takes care of himself. And, uh, still has
1: kids coming left, right, and <laughs> yeah, center. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's Superman.
1: <laughs> well, and again, I was looking at this list. I pulled this up. This is not all off the top of my head. I don't want to make it sound like it is, but I pulled up this list of older artists that are still going right now. And number two on the list of those that it was pointing to was Frankie Valley, uh, from the four seasons. Now there's right. a guy, he's 89 years old now, um you know, his music was really high a lot of the time, a very falsetto. And I, I haven't seen him. I don't, I haven't seen him in years, but that would seem to me to be way more of a challenge when you get up there and the voice starts to go a little, to have that kind of strain as opposed to what Mick does.
0: I agree with you, but you know what? Uh, maybe there's some AI that's going on behind the stage that is making all those side notes happen too, mm-hmm. right?
1: Could be. Could be, you know. I mean, the, only Barry Gibb is left from the Bee Gees. Uh, yeah. You know, same thing. How, how do you how do you do that? At you know, now that he's getting up there, and but they, they they're still, you know, they're still going, and a lot of these guys, and they're still clearly an audience. I mean, we got to go. But has has there ever been a time? Dolly Parton is seventy seven or seventy eight now. Has there ever been a time there is more demand for Dolly Parton than there is right now in her career?
0: I know it's crazy how there, the the demand for Everybody in their senior years uh, is is just so high, and there's so many artists that are still available, that are still touring, that are um, in their 70s and older.
1: Got to see them while you can. That's sort of the the mantra, isn't it? They're, this may be the last time, as you said. Better go see them.
0: I sure hope they don't pull off a Mitch McConnell and just freeze up on stage <laughs> while they are playing.
1: Yeah, that would be not good. That would be <laughs> that would be truly unfortunate. But no, it's um. You know, as I say, I'm scrolling through this list, and it is pretty amazing who the people are. You know, Willie Nelson in his 90s now. Paul McCartney still going in his 80s. Yeah. Brian Wilson. Rod Stewart was just around here in town the other day. Ringo Starr still going. Neil Diamond. Paul Simon. Smokey Robinson. There's a guy whose voice, boy, taxing the voice. Uh, sure. You can go on and on. Amazing that these guys are still going, including, as we say, the Rolling Stones.
0: Um, and these are an elite group. We have to remember that. There's a reason why they're still alive and still doing this, surprisingly. I don't know what the answer is, but they all fit into that uh, elite group of people.
1: Yeah, and until the weekend, uh, Jimmy Buffett was in there, too, and that's uh, you unfortunate. So, May he rest in peace. Absolutely. Lou Molinaro, instructor at Durham College and the Harris Institute for Music. Uh, Lou, really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks. Well,
0: thanks for asking me, and enjoy the rest of your week. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.